We're glad to have you. If you are in Franklin, come out and, uh, or in Nashville, come out and visit with us in Franklin and uh, tell others about uh, the Bible study on YouTube, Ustream, and Sermon Audio Video. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the word that you've given to us by which we can learn of our great salvation. We ask your blessings upon the study tonight for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and for his sake, amen. All right, I said to you that I would like to talk to you about a common theme in the Scripture. In fact, maybe one of the most major themes, and that is the theme of grace, of the grace of God. Uh, you've heard about grace if you've been around a church at all. Everybody believes in grace, even those who really don't stand on grace. They talk about grace, and they talk about the grace of God, and Probably you've been in Bible studies regarding it, and if you profess to be a Christian, without a doubt, you have considered a grace, uh, the grace of God. According to my research, the word grace, both in the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, is, is mentioned some 170 times in the Bible. It's first mentioned here in Genesis Chapter 6, that's why I ask you to turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, and we read in verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, the Bible ends with a, a word about grace in Revelation chapter 22, Verse 21, the last verse in the Bible says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So we see here in Genesis 6 that Noah and his family escaped the great flood because of the grace of God. The second mention of the grace of God is, we'll turn over to Genesis chapter 19, is with regard to the nephew of Abraham, whose name was Lot. The second mention of grace is with regard to Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Two angels, we probably know the story well, two angelic beings were sent by God in the form of human beings to inspect the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and to report back to the Lord the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were homosexual cities. In fact, since those days, uh, homosexuality was addressed until recent times uh, as sodomy. Of course, now we have used the word gay. Too bad that that word has been misused and applied today. But here, these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, two homosexual cities... And uh, Lot, 
his wife had not been happy where they were, and she wanted to move into the big city. So she encouraged him to move into Sodom, and that's where he, that's where he lived. Uh, lived in uh, Sodom, and that's where the, the two angelic beings came, and they stopped to spend the night, and as I say, they were in the form of human beings. And when the men of the city found out that two beautiful, handsome men were guests of Lot, they surrounded his house, and they demanded that Lot send them out. Genesis 19 and verse uh, 4. Verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, surrounded the house round both old and young. Uh, all the people from every quarter of the city and they called unto Lot, and they said to him, Where are the men that came in to you this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. Everybody knows that know here means to know sexually, to be intimate with them sexually. And of course, the scripture says that Lot went to the door, uh, shut the door after him, walked out on the front porch, as it were, and he said, Brethren, don't do so wickedly. And he even did the unthinkable of offering his two daughters to them. Uh, but don't do anything to these men because they are guests and so on. And they were enraged by that. In verse 9, they told him to stand back. And then they started speaking one to another. They said, this, this fellow came in here as a visitor. And now he's set himself up as a judge about what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed terribly upon the man, even Lot, and they came near to break down the door. Well, the men mentioned here in verse 10, these are the two angelic creatures or messengers that are in the form of men. They reach out of the door and uh, they grabbed Lot and they smote, verse 11, they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness. Now, this is a kind of blindness that they could see, but they couldn't find the door. It was like a confusion that he hit them with. So they are trying to find the door, and these two angelic creatures pull Lot back inside, and then they say to Lot, okay, verse 12, do you have anybody here uh, that you want to be spared? Uh, Lot has a son-in-law, verse 12, and your sons, your daughters, whatever you have in this city, you get them out of this place, verse 13, for we will destroy this place because the cry of it has greatly increased as waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And we're going to destroy this place. Lot went out and he spoke unto his sons-in-law who had married his daughters. And he said, get out of this place. The Lord's going to destroy this city. And they did the same thing that people do to you today when you say Jesus is coming. 
And you need to get ready. Are you ready for the coming of Christ? Are you ready for death? Are you ready for eternity? They mocked him. And they said, you're just a foolish old man. We're just getting ready to go down and do some shopping at Kroger or Publix or somewhere. And everything is just fine. And uh, the angels hastened Lot, verse 15. They said, get your wife, get your two daughters, lest you be consumed in the iniquity of this city. And boy, I'd like to just teach you here from these verses, but this is not where we're going tonight. And notice verse 16, it says, while he lingered. (laughs) Here are these two angelic beings trying to get him out of the house, and he's dilly-dallying about, well, I say, let me see now, do I have any slacks and pants I can take with me? I wonder, uh, honey, did you put my wallet in there in the uh, chest of drawers? He's doing something. He's lingering. And they laid hold upon him. They laid hold upon Lot and upon the hand of his wife, upon the hand of his two daughters. Watch this now. The Lord being merciful to it. Boy, if that's not a picture of a sinner, God has to actually grab him and drag him out. He's doing everything he can to stay in there. Being merciful, and they brought him forth, and they set him without the city. And they said in verse 17, escape for your life. Don't look behind you. Don't go and stop in the plain. Go to the mountains, lest you are consumed. In Lot, he's still dilly-dallying. Oh, now he said, look, Oh, here it is. Here's the second mention of grace in Luke chapter 19, verse 19. Since I have found grace in your sight, and since you have magnified your mercy, which you showed unto me in saving my life, I can't escape to the mountain lest some evil take me and I die. That's like the man in the book of Proverbs say, I can't go to work today, honey. She says, why? He said, there's a lion in the street. You ever read that book of Proverbs? That's there to show us how ridiculous people are when they don't want to go to work. They're too lazy to go to work. So the man comes and says, there's a lion in the street, something that's ridiculous. I can't go to the mountains. Oh, no. I mean, my knees bothered me. <laughs> and so he said, let me go to Zoar. Let me go to this small city. The name of the city is Zoar. You can read that in verse 22. So uh, how, how, is, how is Lot delivered from this judgment? He's delivered by the grace of God. How was Noah delivered from the flood? He was delivered by the grace of God. And the, the, the angels got Lot and his family out of the city. And uh, he made his request... Behold, verse 19, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight. He had enough insight to know that he had been delivered or was being delivered by grace. Now, I don't have to tell you in this house uh, that we're saved by the grace of God. The Bible tells us in hundreds of places, I mentioned to you the word grace is mentioned some 170 times in both the Old Testament And the New Testament, the grace of God brings salvation. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8, Paul introduced many of his epistles. Grace, mercy, and peace to you, or grace be to you. 
Uh, no one can approach God apart from grace. And I want you to know that all of his dealings with men are in grace. Now, some theologians want to divide it up into what they call common grace and efficacious grace, uh, sufficient grace and efficient grace. What does that mean? Well, it means that if, you're, if you are alive in this world, there's some kind of grace being extended to you. But efficacious grace is the grace that saves people, saves their souls, brings them to a saving knowledge of and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of God's dealings with human beings is in grace. That's what I want you to understand. The Lord said to Noah, I'm sorry, to Moses in Exodus 33, I know you by name and you have found grace in my sight. So what I want us to do, what I'm planning on doing, if I live, is we're going to have five studies on the grace of God. Uh, some of you who have been here a long time might remember that a few years ago I brought a single study using this same kind of outline, uh, uh, taking the word, the English word grace and making an acrostic out of it. An acrostic is a poem or a word puzzle or some other composition in which the English Letters are the certain letters in each line form a word like this. G in grace is goodness. R in grace is righteousness. A in grace is atonement. C in grace is covenant. And E in grace is election. So G-R-A-C-E, grace, stands upon the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the atonement of God, the covenant with God and the election of God. So tonight, we're just going to consider the G in grace, the goodness of God. So the first thing I would say to you as we get into this study this evening is, you might want to turn to Exodus chapter 33, is that grace begins and stands upon the goodness of God. Now, many of us as children... Learned to pray, God is great, God is good, and we thank Him for our food. By His hand, we all are fed. Give us now our daily bread. That was something that most of us learned when we were children. We didn't think about it, but that little poem, that little prayer, sets forth two major attributes of God the greatness of God, and the, the goodness of God. Now, the greatness of the God of Scripture is bound up in His goodness. And here we find in Exodus chapter 33 that the glory of God is His goodness. Exodus 33, I'm standing here in front of these vents and they keep turning my pages for me. Uh, Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 13. This is between Moses and the Lord. I pray thee, says Moses, verse 13, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. 
Moses said, If you don't go with us, then don't let us leave here. Wherein shall it be known, verse 16, that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that you go with us? And so shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said, I will do this thing also, verse 17, that you have spoken. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Now Moses says, show me your glory. Verse 18, I beseech thee, I appeal to you, show me your glory. And the Lord responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you. The Lord's glory is bound up in his goodness. I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, where have you seen those verses before? In Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and following. So here, the greatness of the God of Scripture is bound up in His goodness. The glory of God is His goodness. If it were not for the goodness of God, not one soul would ever have partaken of salvation. Every single person would perish in his or her sins. Now you think about it, and I've mentioned this many times, why was Adam spared? God said, in the day you eat, you will die. And he did die, didn't he? He died spiritually. The Spirit of God, who had filled Adam, left him, left him under his own power and in his own spirit. And that's what it is to be dead in trespasses and sins. As I've told you many times, you go back and do a little etymological study of the word death and dead, and you find it basically means to separate. So when a person dies, when your body dies, that person is separated from their body. You look into the face of a, a body, a dead body, and you can see that nobody is at home. You see, there's no life in there. When God made Adam, he formed him up. He was a beautiful thing, but he had no life in him. And then the scripture says what? It says God breathed into him. He picked up Adam. Let me just say, this may not have happened just exactly this way, but he took, he took this l dead, lifeless, beautiful thing that had no breath, and he put it up to his mouth, and he, he ruahed him. The Hebrew word ruah is a word for breath or wind or spirit. In the New Testament, the word is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, wind or breath or spirit. When Lord told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wants to, you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's going, how long it's going to be here, where it came from. So as everyone is born of the Spirit, that word is pneuma, the wind, the pneuma. And God ruad this form that he had made because even though Adam was beautiful, he had no life in him until God breathed into him the breath of life. Okay? So when Adam sinned against God, the Spirit of God, not the total life force of God, but the Spirit of God that enlightened Adam withdrew himself. And so Adam is separated from God, so he's dead in trespasses and sins. But he was spared. He was spared. 
God could have just wiped him on out, sent him on to hell and started another, created another world and started with somebody else. But he didn't do that. He spared it. Why? To demonstrate his goodness. Why was Noah spared? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So because the Lord is good, he spared Adam. Because the Lord is good, he spared Noah. Because the Lord is good, he spared Lot. And because the Lord is good, he has spared me and he has spared you. The grace of God stands upon the goodness of God. Noah found grace from the Hebrew word ten, meaning favor or acceptance with God. Genesis 6, 8, we read a moment ago. Lot pled with the Lord, Genesis 19, verse 19, we read that a moment ago. Lot pled with the Lord on the basis of having found grace in his sight. Though God's goodness is displayed in his showing mercy, and his showing mercy we call grace. His grace stands upon his goodness. His goodness is the foundation of his glory. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So we talk about the goodness of God. We're talking about the grace of God. What do we mean by that? Number one, I mean that only God of all things, all persons, and all things is good. Only God is good. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 19, 17, in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, in fact, it's mentioned three times, I think, in the New Testament. He said there's none good but one, and that is God. So nobody is essentially, absolutely, intrinsically good but God. The Lord has never thought evil. He has never spoken evil. He has never done evil. People today talk about good and evil. The only way you find out what good is is by seeing what the Lord does and what the Lord says. He's the one who defines what good and evil is. And without that, you have no moral or ethical compass about what is good and what is bad. He has never loved evil. He has never tolerated evil. As the prophet Habakkuk said in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 3, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on iniquity. The apostle James tells us that God can't be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt anybody with evil. James 1.13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. So God only is good. Number two, he is good for no reason outside himself. From the time we're born and from the time we begin to understand language, we are taught to be good because. Isn't that right? We're all taught to be good because. No human being is good for nothing. <laughs> A lot of us are good for nothing, but we're not good for nothing. You know, be good and I'll give you a surprise. 
You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or not. So you better be good if you want to get any Christmas presents. Isn't that right? We're going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. And that's the way most people look at the God of the Bible, just like Santa Claus. So we are good in order to get. We're good for reward or we're good to avoid punishment. It's impossible for any human being to be good because we're born in a state of sin. And goodness is its own reward. So goodness, which strives to get by being good, or when strives to avoid punishment by being good, that's not goodness. That's hypocrisy, and that's selfishness. And that's why it is none good but one, and that is God. Now, we all know those verses in Romans 3. I could have you turn over there, but I'm coming back to those in a few minutes. There's none good, no, not one. You know what the Bible says? Romans chapter 3, beginning verse 9, go all the way down through verse 23. Well, why is God good? What reward is given to him for his goodness? That's why I share nonsense to try to make a deal with God. People, to, people pray that way all the time. I, Lord, I, I need you right here. I need you. Right here. I'll do this if you'll do that. He doesn't need you, and he doesn't need anything you can give him. It is sheer nonsense to promise the Lord something in exchange for being good. He cannot be tempted, and he doesn't need anything from me. So again, if we obey laws to avoid fines, and that's what we do. How many of us drive down the road and we go in 70 miles an hour and you see a cop down there and you slow down, you become a law-abiding citizen there for half a mile. <laughs> and then when you get past the cop, you get over the hill, you, you back up to 70 or whatever it is. We always have these ulterior motives. We have motivation other than goodness for goodness sake, as it says about Santa Claus. You better be good for goodness sake. We're never good, for goodness sake. We're good because there's some reward in it, or we're going to avoid, avoid punishment. Now, why is God good? What reward is going to be given to him for his goodness? Sheer nonsense to promise the Lord something in exchange for being good. He can't be tempted, and he doesn't need anything from me. So what I'm saying is there's no standard outside of God so, so God is not good because there's a law out here somewhere that says, okay, God, you got to obey this. you got to go according to this. He is a law unto himself. He is the one who determines what is good. You find out what's good by watching him. Now, you got to be careful here because let me ask you a question. Who brought the flood on the earth? Who destroyed the world? Well, God did. Was that good? Yes, sir. That was good. It was good. Just as when he, when he created the world, everything he made, he says what? And the Lord saw him and said, it is good. He did this and he said, it is good. And only when he got to the man, it is not good for him to be alone. Everything else was good. Whatever God does is good. He can't do anything except what is good. If it's bringing a flood or if it's saving a sinner. 
Whatever he does is good. No standard outside of God. He's a law unto himself. Who will punish God if he's not good? Who will reward him if he is good? The glory of God is the goodness of God. He alone is good, and he's good for no reason outside himself. Okay, number three. God alone knows and understands in an exhaustive sense what evil is, and yet he is good. Have you ever thought about that? He knows fully the depths of the mystery of iniquity. The Bible calls iniquity a mystery. You can really get, a, really get uh, confused if you start thinking about how wickedness came into a universe created by a good God who has all the power in the world. He knows the depth of the mystery of iniquity, and yet he is good. Can you imagine if all the things that tempt us were ours to have with no strings attached? Think about that. You have anything you want, anybody you want, with no strings attached, no hell to shun, no penalty to pay, no devil to avoid, no God to fear. You begin to see what I'm trying to say. We can't begin to comprehend the depths of the darkness into which we would plunge ourselves were this the case. This is somewhat how Lucifer became the devil and Satan. The Bible tells us that the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. But the other side of that, the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. So the Lord alone is good, and he's good for no reason outside of himself, and he's good even though he understands the depths of iniquity. He does good because he is good. He fully understands evil, and yet he is good. And this is part of what his glory is. All right, how does the Lord reveal and display his goodness? Number one, he does this by creating. Why did the Lord create the universe? Now, I'm not here to pick on anybody. I have said some pretty foolish things myself over the years, some things that I wish I could take back. But years ago, I heard Jerry Falwell. Does some of you remember Jerry Falwell? Okay. We have a young man who worships here with us, and he graduated from Liberty University. Jerry Falwell once said that the reason God made man and made the world is because he was lonely. Okay. Now, I don't want to get into the unity and the diversity principle of God, but that's why the God of Scripture, the God of the Christian, never can be lonely because there are three persons in the Godhead. He is not an absolute God like the God of Islam. The God of Islam is an absolute God. There's nothing and nobody outside of himself. The Hindus go the other way, and so do the Buddhists. They've got thousands of gods. Plenty of fellowship there. But the God of the Bible, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, have a unity in diversity. 
when you graduate from uh, school, say Ivy and Leo may want to go to college. What's the word we use for the college? University. University. You know, that tells us that there's one God, one universe. Pretty soon we're going to be talking about going to the multiversity because we don't believe in a single one God. We've got all kinds of God. We've got Mother Nature, Mother Nature, she's a God. Father Time is a God. You've got other gods. But the Scripture says that there's one God. But this one God exists or has revealed himself in three persons, yet without confusion, without mixture, one God, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is one God. This is why many people, but especially Jewish people, wrestle with the God of the Christian, because the God of the Christian is God, but is unity in diversity. So we have, that's why I say we have the university. Now, why did the Lord create the universe? Have you ever read over there when he said, let us make man in our image? Who is he talking to? Well, that's a conversation between the persons of the Godhead. You read over in John chapter 17 where Jesus utters his high priestly prayer. He says, I do not pray for the world, but I pray for those that you have given me, and I pray that they may be one as we are one. And in John chapter 10 and verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. So the God, God of Scripture revealed himself, revealed his goodness and displayed his goodness by creating. Why did he create the universe? Did he need anything? No. Was he incomplete? No. Revelation 4, verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure. You want to know why he created? For thy pleasure they are and were created. Romans eleven thirty six: Of him, through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. I'll tell you, and I say this all the time in different ways, but the bottom line issue with people uh, who are confronted with, if they just read the Bible, if they just read the Scripture, sooner or later you're going to be confronted with what we call the sovereignty of God. You're going to find out that God doesn't need anything outside of himself that he's not dependent on anything outside of himself, that what he does, he does for his own good pleasure. He did it because he wants to. That's why he wants to. So why does God do this? Why does that do that? Because he wants to. That's the southern answer. Because he wants to. The biblical answer is for his good pleasure. He does it because it pleases him to do so. What is stamped upon all of creation? The goodness of God. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So no wonder David said in Psalm 90, 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the goodness of God and the grace of God. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he said, the whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah chapter 6. So the Lord's goodness is revealed in his creation. Secondly, his goodness is revealed in his dealings with men. 
a lot of people today, without even realizing it, is because of what they're being taught, or rather what they're not being taught. They're viewing God deistically. The God of deism is the God who made everything, but he doesn't have anything to do with the creation that he made. He wound it up like a clock. He established the laws and the principles by which it will run, and that's it. He doesn't have anything to do with the universe, with anything that's going on in it, in this world, with any of the people that's going on in this world. And people who say, well, you know, God doesn't have anything to do with suffering. God has nothing to do with suffering. You know what you're saying when you say that? You are saying if you have problems and if you suffer, that your suffering has absolutely no purpose. No purpose behind your suffering. Was suffering caused by the flood? Was suffering caused when he brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? Is suffering going to be caused when Christ comes again and judges this world? No, we have to understand that I, I, I say this all the time, but I keep saying it because I don't think people believe it. Nothing happens in God's universe without either his permission or without him actually bringing it to pass. His goodness is revealed in his creation, in his dealings with men. We see his goodness everywhere. He has everything to do with the world he has created. We do not believe in a God of deism. Oh, how kind he is. Oh, how patient he is. How good he is to men who deny even his existence, much less his provision for them. He makes the sun to shine on the just and on the unjust. That reveals his goodness. Ralph Barnard, the old evangelist, used to say, the older I get, the more I understand what he meant. He used to say, you better be glad I'm not God, because if I were, I'd have sent you all to hell a long time ago. And what he means by that, he's emphasizing the patience of God, the long-suffering of God, that people give glory to anything and everything, but they will not say, they'll say, I've been lucky. They'll say, this happened, that happened, but if that happened, I wouldn't have done this. But they won't ever say, glory to God, he's the one who's rescued me. He's the one who spared me in this flood. He's the one who's given me life. You don't hear any of that on the news. If anybody said it, they wouldn't put it on the news. He's so patient, and he's so kind, and he's so good to men. Listen to the names of God. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider, Genesis 22. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals, Exodus 15. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace, Judges chapter 6. Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord our shepherd, Psalm 23. I mean, all of these names of God show his goodness. He's a provider. He's the one that heals us. Every time you've gotten sick and you got well, it's the Lord that made you well. You might have taken some pills and the doctor may have given you a shot, but you wouldn't get well if it were not for the goodness of God. He, who do you think gave the information and the knowledge to the physicists and the other people who developed these drugs. God did. Brother Foster can tell you because he was a medical doctor 
that there was a time when a man discovered, he discovered little bitty things wiggling around on a pinhead, and they put him in an insane asylum. He was looking for a microscope, and he began to, uh, 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 women that had babies, uh, they started dying in the giving of the birth of children, and they discovered, lo and behold, that if the doctors washed their hands, just something as simple as washing your hands, the Lord told Israel about that thousands of years before it was ever discovered. They didn't pay any attention to it. Just washing your hands, get things called germs. You have, you, you're trying to help a woman have a child, you pass all this bacteria, and it gets up inside of her, and she dies from it. And when a man began to discover these things through a microscope, at first they thought he was loony. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was demon-possessed. You see, in his dealings with men, he has shown his goodness. He has shown his love. He that loves not knoweth not God, for God is love. 1 John 4 and verse 8. The love of God is the goodness of God being manifested in the grace of God to fallen man. Finally, his love is seen in the giving of his son to save sinners. Christ did not die for men, for good men. He died for sinners. He died, the scripture says, for the ungodly. He died for the lost. Good men don't go to heaven. Sinners go to heaven. Christ died for those who look to, uh, and he died for folks that look to everything and everybody until he brings them to look to him. You know why anyone is saved? The goodness of God. Romans chapter 3, none are righteous, none understand, none seek the Lord, none walk in his way. They've all gone out of the way. None can profit him. They're altogether unprofitable. Although he is good among men, there's none good, no, not one. And yet he saves us. What did the Lord see when he looked upon the children of men? Let's just stop here. Let's turn to Psalm 14 in the Old Testament. It won't take but a minute. It's mentioned in two Psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And Paul borrows it and sets it forth in Romans chapter 3. Psalm 14. So you'll recognize this right away. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt. They've done abominable works. There's none that doeth good. Now watch this, verse 2. The Lord looked down from heaven. Now you know that that is a accommodating statement. In other words, God doesn't have to look down, look over the edge from heaven. Okay? That's a statement to accommodate our understanding. It's saying that God looked down upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. What did he see? They've all gone aside, verse 3. They're all together become filthy. The word there, the Hebrew word is corrupt. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. That's what Paul borrowed in Romans chapter 3. 
This is also repeated in Psalm 53. And then again, of course, in Romans chapter 3. So when the Lord looked down and he saw that men would gone aside, they were altogether filthy, there's none of them that did good, there's none of them that understood, or none of them that sought God, what did he do? All right, I said that was the last passage I lied. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. When you look down upon the fallen children of men, what did he do? Well, he determined that he was going to save a number, which no man can number, out of that race of fallen human beings. He chose to reveal his grace to men in showing his goodness to a multitude which no man can number. Now, the question is, will he save any who do not turn to him, who do not repent? The answer is no, he will not. Well, if nobody seeks God, if nobody understands, how is anybody going to be saved? Answer, the grace of God, the goodness of God. So in Romans chapter 2, we find that he sends his word in the power of his spirit and his goodness, and he turns men to himself. Romans chapter 2. Notice he says in verse 4, Do you despise the riches of his goodness and his forbearance, how he's put up with us until we came to trust in him and his long suffering? Not knowing, do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repent? It is the goodness of God that leads men to repent. He comes down and brings something into your life. Uh, He gets your attention. He begins to turn you inside. You find yourself longing to seek the Lord and longing to know Him. You find an interest in His Word, an interest uh, in hearing the teaching of His Word, an interest in fellowshipping with His people. How did that happen? If none seek the Lord, if there's none good, no, not one, if nobody understood, how does that happen? Well, God is behind the salvation of people. He's the one who saves them. You can't blame God if people die lost because they don't want anything to do with them. God saves men against their will with their full consent. How about that? He saves men against their will with their full consent. Have you ever read Psalm 110, verse 3? Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. God puts forth power and he changes the willer. He changes the inside of men and men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. You can be sure that when a man calls upon the name of the Lord, it's because the Lord is calling him. All men are deserving of wrath, of judgment, and punishment, but some are spared. And it is the goodness of God in the person of Jesus Christ displayed through grace, the grace of God by which any are saved. So grace begins with the G, the goodness of God.
Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for sparing us. Thank you that we want to be here tonight and learn something about you and learn from your word. I just pray that you'll bless your word and that you will bring many souls to call upon the name of the Lord that they might be saved before it's too late. We thank you for giving your son. We thank you for sending your spirit. We thank you for giving us a written word by which we are instructed. And we give all the praise and all the glory and all the adoration to you, Father, because if you had not exercised your goodness toward us, we would have never tasted of the grace of God that brings us unto Christ. We thank you. We praise you in his name for his sake. Amen. Okay. <laughs>